Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's a TV personality, a game show host, a comedian, and the announcer for The Price is Right. It's George Gray. How are you doing today, George? It's a beautiful buildup, Alex. Thank you very much, my brother. I'm doing great. I see you're properly representing the Blues. Yes, got to support our St. Louis teams. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, it was a little rough there uh, in 2020 for the Blues. Yeah, I mean, all the St. Louis sports, you can put an asterisk because I, I don't count this season. It's kind of like a warm-up to the next season that we're about to have. Where so you wouldn't, have count, you wouldn't have counted it if we won the World Series? Only that part. If we then won you the would, World Series. They'd be like, well, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only I, mean, way. I guess we have to count it. Yes. Right. So I'm so happy to have you on the show. What we do with all of our guests is we go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Well, that's pretty broad. <laughs> so, Alex, tell me your thoughts and feelings. Go. I, uh, uh, I was born in uh, Baldwin. Well, actually, no, that's not true. I grew up in Baldwin. I was, I was really born in Shrewsbury. Um, and then my parents had an apartment there for, I think, about a year and a half, um, maybe less. And they were having a home built. So it's my older sister and myself as an infant. And then they built the home in Baldwin. It was, you know, West County was kind of the middle of nowhere in the late 60s. And, uh, and they were just building like crazy. And, uh, and so that was the first home that I remember. And then uh, in the uh, mid-70s, 75, my dad, he worked for, um, hi, buddy. You guys can't see it. Well, there you go. This is Prince. Yeah, Prince likes to help out with just about everything, so he may come in and give me a hand now and again today. Um, so uh, my dad was in uh, county government in in uh, the St. Louis area. He worked for a guy named uh, Roos, uh, Harry Roos. I think he was in the, maybe the mayor. He ran for his election campaign, so he was doing all that kind of stuff. And then my dad was county manager, I believe, for Clayton, which was the middle of nowhere. I remember being a little kid and wearing a hard hat. <laughs> and going to the Clayton government building. And now, you know, Clayton's pretty darn huge. Yeah. Um, so, the, and that would have been like, you know, 72. And, uh, and then in 75, my dad got a job um, in Tucson, Arizona as the assistant city manager there. And so uh, they sold the home up and moved the family and uh, hello buddy. And then for 20 years, my dad, kind of ran the city government there. And so I went to uh, the rest of my elementary school because everybody always asked, where'd you go to, where'd you go to high school? Where'd you go to high school? I would have gone uh, to Parkway West, but I did not go to Parkway West. That would have been my school. I'm a central, Parkway Central. Rat. Okay. Yeah, it's weird. That's a thing that everybody asks uh, okay. in St. Louis. It's like one of the top questions. It's very strange. Um, and uh, so I went to high school, college in Tucson. And then uh, my career started and started doing well. And then I was doing a show called Weakest Link. Um, well, actually, it's now out again. So I guess people are familiar with, with Jane Lynch. But I was the host of the syndicated version in 2000, 2001. And uh, uh, my, my pop passed away while I was doing the show. And so when I was on break, we went back just to kind of do a little St. Louis kind of a remembrance trip, go see where we grew up, see his childhood home. 
down in the city off Kings Highway and all that. And uh, and then while we were there, we were in front of the home in Baldwin, and uh, it looked empty. And we didn't want to like be creepers, but we're like seems like it's nobody's living in it. So we're kind of looking in the windows, and the neighbor from across the street, um, she still lived there, uh, Rosemary. She came out, said hi, and she said actually the owner was thinking about selling it. I called the owner right there and we made a deal over the phone. And so um, I bought back my childhood home 30 years later. And, uh, and now I own half of it and my sister and brother-in-law own the other half. And, uh, and they live there full time now. They, they were, I was using it as a vacation home. They were using it as a vacation home and they loved it so much. They started renting out their house in Arizona and then about three years later, they said, you know what, do you mind if we just move here permanently? I'm like, absolutely not. Are you kidding? It's the family home. So they love it so much. They're there all the time. But like now we're, we're in production right now, finally again. Um, and uh, we do one more week and then uh, we're down for the Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, I'm, I'm going back to Baldwin. So I'll, I'll be there for you know, a couple weeks and I'll come back out here, shoot a little more. Then I'll go back. For Christmas and New Year's. So, you know, I love going home. It's great. They got you on a busy schedule, which is probably nice since when all the shows took a break, it was kind of like, what do I do next in a kind of a way? Yeah, well, I mean, I could just stay here and this, uh, you guys are looking at LA right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's not like I couldn't occupy myself here. <laughs> What's funny is I don't, I don't drink hard alcohol. So it's just but, for right now. No, it's not for show. It's it's for anybody who's here. You know, it's. I mean, it's a. It's. You know, I would say it's a very well stocked bar. No, I drink. I drink beer and wine. Um, but you know, you can't be a rotten host. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so you get to hang out with the Rat Pack. It works out well. Did you have any passion growing up? Because you were when you started your career, you were into comedy and hosting. Did you kind of find that passion growing up or were you going in a different direction? Well, uh, my mom, the way I got into, I guess the business is my mom was, uh, she was a casting director in Arizona, mostly extras. There was a huge, in the, in the late seventies, there was a huge industry for Westerns. Westerns were very popular to that. I mean, if there was a movie, it was a Western. And, um, and so she would do all the local casting, you know, if they needed, if they needed a hooker go, ah, and then run out the room and I got to bring her in from California or some, you know, a guy saying, you know, here's your Greek. And I got to hire LA actors. So they'd, they'd call them five and unders, mm-hmm. you know? So she would cast all the extras, um, all the kind of scenery in the background and then people who would have small lines and stuff like that and all these kind of big movies. And she was one of the big dogs in Arizona when I was growing up for casting all that kind of stuff. And then Western sort of died out and then other kind of movies kind of came up through the eighties. And uh, so I worked as an extra in movies from the time I was in, I think, God, it may have been third grade, maybe fourth grade, but I know by fifth grade I was doing it all the time. And I, it wasn't that, oh, I'm an actor. It was, oh, I get to ditch school and I get 35 bucks a day 
which coincidentally was the exact amount of cash that an Atari cartridge cost back then. Oh, wow. You're too young to know what an Atari cartridge was, but essentially it was crack cocaine in a plastic bin. And so, you know, as a 10-year-old, I needed my fix. <laughs> and so if I could go out and get the new Space Invaders cartridge, that was, that was the best thing. So I actually, I loved it being an extra. It was super fun. You know, you get to play dress up and make believe. We had to get up early in the morning. That's the only part I hated. But then, so that's how I kind of got introduced to the whole business. And then it was in the 80s, uh, I wound up doing a couple of fairly big teen films um, and then started just working by accident. It was one called uh, um, Can't Buy Me Love. It was a very big 80s movie. And and I played the jerk boyfriend in it. Small role, but... Uh, um, and then I did a... Another Disney movie called Teen Angel, played a jerk boyfriend, and uh, sensing a theme here. Yeah. And um, and that was with um, uh, Patrick Dempsey was in Can't Buy Me Love, and that really his career went crazy after that. And um, Teen Angel was a, an up and comer named Jason Priestley, and uh, and then he kind of right after that got nine hundred two one zero, and uh, so that's when I sort of said this is kind of cool. I could sort of do this. And then I, but I had, I had no stage experience. I had no, I had no training. I had, I had a resume, but I had no training. Mm -hmm. so the opposite of what you're supposed to do as an actor, basically zero skill and luck, I guess. And, um, and so I thought, well, stand up can't be that hard. I don't know why I thought that, but so I just started writing jokes and went down to the local comedy club to, in Tucson called Laughs and did my three minutes. And they said, hey, you know, uh, that, was, that was not bad. If you want to come back, we'll give you another three next week. And then they gave me six and then they gave me 10. And then I was opening and the middling. So it all kind of happened really quick. You know, within a year I was middling and then traveling. And uh, so I, I just sort of wound up in the business. And then when I, I decided I was going to move out to LA after college, because I was going to maybe go to law school. And, uh, but I figured if I was going to try to make it in the business, don't go to law school, spend all the money. Yeah. You know, it, try your luck first, then go to law school. And so I, uh, so I came out here and, you know, started telling penis jokes and the rest is history. So what made you think about going to law school? Was there like, like, did you want to be a lawyer or was it just like, I didn't actually want to be a trial. I don't want to be a trial lawyer. I liked uh, corporate law. I kind of was fascinated by that. Um, but I mean, it, you know, it, it would. I remember I was the vice president of my law fraternity for like three seconds, and it was a it was a nerd fraternity. It was not a party fraternity. And I remember that when they pinned the pins on us or I don't remember. There was a ceremony, there was a hotel, and the one the one guy said, Oh yeah, they you know, they had given us a room, like the you know, one of the presidential suites or whatever for tonight because we spent all the money here, you know. And I'm like, oh my God, that's awesome. Let's go back and party there right now. And he said, Oh no, we told him no thanks because we've got to study tomorrow. I'm like, what? And that was the last time I hung out with those guys. I never saw them again. I was like with them for three days, I think. So bunch of nerds yeah you're given a free room and you don't even take it or yeah yeah money for it but you don't even take yeah nah, I, I definitely 
I definitely enjoyed college on multiple levels, let's just say. Multiple so when, levels. When you were at college, were you also doing finding jobs at the same time, trying to build up that resume also? Uh, say that again? So when you were going to college, were you also trying to act, find jobs at the same time? I actually, I was, yeah, I was working. Uh, that was weird. What did it for me, kind of the turning point is, um, it was my junior year and I was carrying over 20 credits, which you needed approval for. Um, and uh, I was playing in a band um, and I was just kind of doing a bunch of things, you know? I played baseball my whole life up until, gosh, what, my sophomore year in college. And then uh, no, I decided to break my ankle for fun. Um, so I was just doing a bunch of things, but then I, I booked this role. I went out for an audition for this Disney movie, um, Teen Angel, and I booked it. And uh, they, it was, I would have had to, you know, I was, I was going to school in Tucson, but it was going to shoot Phoenix. And um, so, you know, I was going to have to live in a motel room and it wasn't glamorous, but I was going to have to live in a motel room. I think, I think the production schedule was about a month. And, um, but I, there's no way I could stay in that semester. You know, that I, I would have never made it in my classes. And so I had to kind of make the decision, do I just pass on it or do I drop out for a semester? And so uh, all my professors were super cool. I asked them all. They're like, yeah, go. It sounds fun. Yeah, you know, everybody was super nice and I went and did it. And it was, I stayed in a motel six that later I found out was, uh, at the corner where all the uh, prostitutes hung out. I just thought everybody was super friendly. Uh, but, uh, um, yeah, this was not a glamorous part of town. It was a motel six. Um, you know, nobody at the time was famous. Jason Priestley, he was definitely the star of the show, but, I don't think that anybody knew who he was. And, um, but it was like, wow, it was really cool. You run your lines and you study and you get together and you work your scenes. And so after that, I was, I was really hooked. I was like, wow, that's really cool. I like that. And so I actually started out as a scripted uh, film and TV actor. I never thought that I would be saying, come on down. <laughs> that, that's true. Yeah, here we are. What's the biggest thing you learned about yourself from your early days up to college? It's the biggest thing I've learned about myself. Like, did you kind of learn something new about yourself that you never thought you could be able to do something or a new skill set? Well, I guess, I mean, you know, you should be a shrink. That'd be a good question. Um, I think well, and one of the biggest things I learned, and I learned it in, was it seventh grade? Yeah, between seventh and eighth grade, is I was deathly shy as a kid. Deathly shy. And I actually still am quite shy. Um, a lot of performers, a lot of comics, a lot of performers can be very introverted people, I guess it's a defense mechanism, but I just decided I hated being shy and I didn't want to do it anymore. So over summer, I decided I was going to change. And by eighth grade, I was just kind of very outgoing and, but forcing it, you know, I was just kind of putting up this wall and then, you know, same in high school. And so that allowed me to do what I do. So yeah, I guess, you know, is, you know, even if you're deathly shy, you can do public speaking if you just put your mind to it.
That is true. I'm a person, like, I have to get to know the person to be able to, like, open up to them. But when I did public speaking, I could get an A easily on a topic or something. I mean, I go back to, I had to perform a speech about curling, the sport. and About curling? Curling, yeah. The Olympic winter sport. And I was like, my teacher's like, have you done that before? I go, nope, just Googled it. But it shows, like, the confidence you have, where if you become very confident and not get break out of your shell in a way you're able to do anything. And now the way you are on TV, you would never have thought that you were shy because you're just so, it's just your energy that you have that kind of just, you could talk to anyone probably. I would just love to hear you do an hour dissertation on curling oh. and just, <laughs> just watch people's eyes roll in the back of their sockets. I just imagine if I had, if the speech was on ice and I had like the curling stones and everything, and I'm just like shooting it down. Oh, I think I, I would amaze so many people. <laughs> would you say that Disney movie was the stepping stone to what was next in your career? Or was it still like you were still taking some smaller roles before you got those hosting gigs? You know, that I think that that everybody kind of naturally thinks that there's, I mean, it's even a phrase, the big break, you know, you got your big break. And um, yeah, that can happen. But the truth is, is there's all sorts of little breaks that happen. And there's, it, it, it's just like anybody else's career goes up and down, you know, just because you're, you know, the, the senior manager at Waffle House doesn't mean the next day you're not on unemployment and then starting all over again. It just... You know, there's no guarantee that, well, I'm in senior management now. Well, yeah, for this job, but not for the next one. So for me, it was, you know, being an extra and being exposed to the industry and then um, and then doing some small roles. I did a, what was it? It was called Young Writers. It was a series based on young guns. And I, you know, I played a guest star. I just started guest starring and, and you know, co-starring, guest starring and, in some TV, and then uh, did uh, uh, worked on the movie Tombstone and then Stargate. So I started working on you know bigger movies, and uh, so that you know those are baby baby steps. And then um, I think the yeah, Teen Angel was the one that taught me that you know maybe this could be fun for a, an actual job. And then uh, Can't Buy Me Love was actually a big hit. And, uh, and so I think that got my foot in some doors and, um, you know, it was a novelty. And then, uh, and then doing stand up got me into sketch and, uh, and then sketch got me into more sitcoms. And, um, and then I, I got my own sitcom that then got shelved because the, it's a longer story, but Universal, you, know, you buy and sell companies, and so they shelved the project but sat on my contract. So I wound up doing a warm-up for audiences um, just to pay the bills. And, uh, you know, you, I would argue that was a step down. Um, but uh, I was warming up for game reality talk shows, and so I was in that world. And so then while I was around that world, I started auditioning for those small hosting gigs. And so then I started booking hosting gigs. So I was, 
was very foreign to me, but uh, so that was another small stepping stone, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and then I started to do some small shows. I did, my first one was called FXM Friday Nights, which was for Fox. It was their movie channel. I think now it's called, maybe called, not FXX, that sounds like a porn channel, but. I think it's FXM. Like they just took. Is it still called FXM? Yeah. They, oh, okay. They just abbreviate everything nowadays. Okay, well, it was called FXM at the time, uh, and it was just doing wraparounds for their movies, for their catalog, and uh, and then I did um, uh, movies for guys who like movies for Turner on TBS, okay. another wraparound show, and then I booked uh, um, a updated version of the Gong Show from the 70s called Extreme Gong, and uh, it was a live-to-air production by Sony. And that was a big stepping stone. So then people would say, oh, how did you get this job? You know, you just kind of came out of nowhere. I was like, well, no, I didn't come out of nowhere. I, you know, did all this. And then when I, then I did, uh, let's see, after that, after the Gong Show, did I do, I did Junkyard Wars after the Gong Show, I think. Or maybe I'm sure there was something in the middle there. But I did a show called Junkyard Wars that was, nobody was ever going to see in a million years. Um, shot it over in the UK and it became a massive hit for Discovery. It was huge. I got nominated for a primetime Emmy. I mean, it was big, big, big. It started up, it really was the beginning of all those build off shows that now are very, very common that I love. Um, but it was, I don't know if it was the first, but it was definitely the biggest first one. And, um, and so from there I booked, so that was a stepping stone. And from there, NBC noticed me and I was on their radar when they were looking for a host for Weakest Link, and I booked that, and that was a stepping stone. And then when I did Weakest Link, people were like, wow, this is your big break, you know, we've never seen him. Like, well, no, I've done this and this and this, you know. And then when I got Price, a lot of people were like, wow, where'd you come from? So have you been announcing your whole life? I'm like, nope, I've never announced anything ever, not once. I don't do voiceovers, I'm not an announcer. And I'm like, oh, where'd you come from? Well, I came from here and here and here and here and here and here. So it's, you know, you're, you're constantly in a path. But I never thought that I would be uh, filling, you know, Rod Roddy's shoes, his sparkly, sparkly shoes. When you did, like, the Extreme Gong, did you ever watch the previous version to kind of understand, like, what that show was about so you could be better prepared when you were hosting it? Uh, Chuck Barris? Uh, did you ever see the original Gong Show? No. Too young. Yeah. <laughs> Damn kids in your rock and roll. Uh, it was a very big show in the 70s, and it was very irreverent, and it kind of broke all the molds because up until then, hosts always talk like this, and we'll be right back after these messages. And uh, he was... Um, he was the executive producer of the show. Apparently, as I, I think the legend is, there was a host of the show. I don't know if he showed up late or if he was, just didn't like him, but whatever it was, he fired him like right before they were supposed to start doing the show. He said, I can do this. This is easy. I can do this. So he put on a terrible looking tuxedo. He had big, like a wiry kind of a fro. And, uh, and he would just come out and be like, hey. And he kept doing this all the time. Hey, okay. All right, welcome to the show. We're going to have a great show. You know, I mean, just super loose. Podcast style. I mean, just loose, 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 loose. And people liked it. It fit for the show. It was very irreverent. And he kind of helped pioneer that really 
like non-hosty format, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, of course, I watched the show growing up. I knew he was. I watched The Price is Right growing up, you know? But I didn't try to emulate, you know, the guys who had come before me. You got to do it yourself. Well, definitely one show that you probably definitely couldn't do is Ann Robinson from League of Slain. Because her style and then your style, you guys were definitely completely different. As Very different. Yeah, yeah. It kind of viewed you as like a class clowns. And what was that experience like for you, being the host and having that serious kind of look, but you know you could crack those jokes at the contestants? Yeah, a lot of times the hardest part when I was doing Weakest Link was not first out laughing. Oh, I, I would fail. I would. That was, that was difficult. I still have somewhere. I, I really should find it. I really should. I, keep, I, I say it like every, every year or two, I, somebody will ask and I'll say it. But there was a, they let me, everything that I did was improv. I mean, I just said whatever. They said, have fun, do whatever you want. We'll edit the show. So, you know, if a joke doesn't work, we'll cut it out. And if it does, we'll keep it. And so I would just kind of, I would stand in front of somebody and I would just freewheel with them for maybe a minute. If I, if I thought I really got what I needed out of them, mm-hmm. you know, great. Then we're done. I'll move on to the next victim. Um, but if not, if we're having a blast, if things are just going hilarious, I would stay there for five minutes knowing they could never use it for air, but just having fun. And they were very nice about letting me do that. Um, well, the editors... Uh, were always very kind, and um, as they say in the business, uh, a few outtakes fell off the back of a truck, and so um, I have a disc somewhere. I have a v- v- VHS and a disc of outtakes that never made the show, partially because they could never make the show. They were a little, a little racy at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, some really fun stuff. I, mean, I think it, it lasts maybe three or four minutes. So I'll have to dig it up on those days. Would you say that your time as a comedian or doing sketch uh, comedy helped being a host on that show and improving in those moments? Uh, everything helps everything, you know? Work helps work. So um, thank you for this meeting, no longer has a time limit. All right, I've never seen that. I'm just gonna. Oh, that's new. Get a big box that went right over your face that said, <laughs> "Eating no longer has a time limit." All right. Perfectly fine with me. That was weird. Welcome to COVID. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I did to help put food on the table uh, is this was been the early '90s when I first moved to LA, and I was a starving actor. Holy moly! Is um, I had made friends with a guy who owned it. What did he own it? I know he ran it. I don't know. Maybe he was calling her, uh, but it was a comedy traffic school. And uh, in California back in the day, if you got a ticket and you could, you know, go to traffic school, there was no regulation that you had to go to a, a CHP. You know, you had to go to, you didn't have to go to a, you could go to an officer who was going to talk about his banana in the tailpipe, you know, for an hour. Uh, but, uh, you could go to, as long as the information was taught, they would have chocolate lovers, uh, uh, you know, traffic school, free pizza traffic school. They had, there was a huge industry of traffic schools in California. And one was comedy traffic school. And, uh, and I learned very quick, you couldn't, people were pissed off that they had to be there. 
it was like it was an eight hour day i think they had to be there at like it was eight or nine in the morning they were just angry and the last thing they were it's like why did you sign up for this class to smile i don't know maybe it just at the time it seemed like a good idea but they the last thing they were in the mood for was to laugh these half of them were hung over the other half were angry and a few were both and uh but what I really discovered fast with that is, so I would just, I would do what I called at the time, what's your name, who's your daddy? And I would just say, what's your name? Alex. Oh, Alex, where are you from? Okay. Well, how'd you get your ticket? Oh, what do you do for a living? And I would just, I would just kind of mess around with you and screw around with you and, and have a blast. And, you know, eventually I would win over everybody and we'd all have a great time during the day. So that was a really hostile environment. So that probably weirdly helped me uh, perform live better than anything else because I wasn't afraid of anything after that. Like if you can do that, you can walk in a room of 40 really angry people <laughs> at night in the morning that you're supposed to make laugh because it's in the title of your job while you teach traffic school, good luck. Now, I mean, I don't even think there's anything like that here. Not that, I, I mean, I haven't gone to traffic school, so that's a good thing. Well, because you're a flawless driver, yeah. I think I am, but. Right. I, um, I, think, uh, I think these days you just go online. Yeah. I think that's it. Or they it's send you online. community service thing and you do that or. Community service? No, I think that's if you get arrested. Well, I haven't gotten arrested, so let's. <laughs> Do you, ever, sure. do you ever watch yourself, like, old episodes? Like, do you ever go on, like, the internet and watch an old episode that you're in on any TV show? Kind of just do I ever purposely watch my, my old work? Yeah. No. Is there a reason why? Why would I want to do that? Hey, you never know. Never know. I would say that that would be the equivalent to you saying that occasionally – you think it's just fun to put on a speedo and look at yourself in the mirror for a while. Well, that I definitely never You can feel the same amount of horror and shame. <laughs> like, yeah, the only reason I ever, sorry, this stuff keeps popping up. Um, the only reason I ever watch myself to this day is one of two reasons. If it's something new that I'm doing, or something different that we're trying on whatever show I'm on, then I'll watch it to see if, if I'm doing the right thing. Do I need to make adjustments, you know? So yeah, when I first started Price, of course I watched because I wanted to see, all right, am I coming across, you know, too cheesy? <laughs> I, you know, what do I, what do I need to do? Cause you know, let's face it. I mean, you know, when I'm talking about green beans, I'm talking about green beans. I mean, you need to be a little more excited than your average Joe about green beans, I get it. So, you know, it's that fine line of how do you be excited, but how do you be sort of genuine about it, and how do you have fun? So yeah, I would watch that kind of stuff, but no, I would never purposely, oh, the only the only other time I do it is when my mom wants to. They're like, I'll go back to St. Louis, and my mom will say, oh, I've got it queued up, do you wanna watch The Price is Right with me? And I'll always say, no, but I will. <laughs> That's how I watch the show with it. Are you someone that like critiques everything that you do? Like when you are rewatching A Price is Right, are you like, 
well, I need to say this better or do this a little bit. Or you kind of like, it happens and maybe it made the kind of the show the way that you said something or you did something. Well, like I said, I don't, I don't watch the show myself. Like if we do a Halloween special, I'll, I'll tune in and see like, oh, how do the costumes look? How does it all come together? You know, so if it's something big like that, just a normal episode of a normal day, no, I, I mean, I think I got it down pat by now. I think I figured it out. It's, um, as a matter of fact, my, my 10 year anniversary will be, I'm not sure when this will air, but it will be um, what will be this coming Wednesday is the 18th, I believe. Yes. Yeah. You know, no, uh, Wednesday, November the 18th will be my 10 year anniversary of the very first uh, time I was on camera for The Price is Right. So really cool. Could you believe that you've been on there for almost 10 years? It's crazy. It, it's just flown by. And in any other job in television, if you are on a series for a decade, that's a long time. I mean, that's legendary. At Price, you just got in the door, kid. Relax. <laughs> like, uh, the, you know, there's only been three other guys that have had the job that I do. And uh, Johnny Olson, I don't know how long Johnny had the job. Um, but he had the job till he died. And then, and then Rod Roddy took over. And he had the job until he died. Okay. And then... And then uh, Rich Fields had the job, and he did it for just a decade. And uh, and so now I'm going to go back to having it till I die. <laughs> I was like worried that the trend was happening, and then. Well, I mean, let's face it. I almost died in uh, April from a heart attack. So you know, I guess I was trying. Oh, no. So how did you find the opportunity to? be a part of The Price is Right. You mean how did I? Or how did you get the job in a way? How did I get the gig? Um, the executive producer at the time, he has since left. He now is overseeing um, two little shows called Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Okay. Uh, two minor shows nowadays. Tiny little shows. Uh, his name is Mike Richards. And uh, when, when uh, Drew Carey came on to price Mike shepherded the whole show and was about you know how do you keep it being the same show that everybody knows and loves but how do you move it forward keep it fresh get you know a, a whole new generation watching and he would do college specials and you know uh, and it used to be if you watch old episodes the audience was quite quiet mm -hmm. you know and Mike introduced the concept of that fun party frenzy feel that now we have. It's the only way I know the show. Um, so uh, we came up in the business together. We were both doing hosting work. Um, and another guy named Bob Oshak. Bob Oshak, Mike Richards, and myself were the first, not the only three clients, but we all came on at the same time at William Morris under a guy named Chris Newman our agent. And, uh, he believed in all of us and, uh, he would put us out for jobs, but we were all kind of different. Um, Bob was kind of a David Letterman sort of character. Um, 
and Mike Richards was a Dick Clark sort of character. And then I was just an idiot. I don't know, just terrible. Um, but I actually started booking a lot more of the on-camera hosting gigs before they did. And Mike, actually a little bit of trivia is um, that, and this is as per Mike, so I 100% believe it, is he was down to the wire for a tiny little show called uh, American Idol. And he was supposed to have Seacrest job. And he was, I don't know whether he was, I think it was the production company's first choice as the story goes. Um, but the network at the last minute panicked and said, well, he doesn't have any live experience. And they loved the fact that Ryan had, you know, did live every day so that, that he wasn't gonna panic. And so, uh, or maybe he was supposed to, maybe he was supposed to be Dunkelman's position. I'm not sure. Maybe, so maybe Ryan, no, cause it, cause it was, I know Ryan had the on-air experience. So, uh, so Mike almost became one of the most legendary names in, in hosting. You know, it's funny how that works. Well, he's now become, I mean, he, his name will go down as one of the big ballers in executive producing of, uh, you know, reality game. And, um, so when I got weakest link, our agent, uh, did some maneuvering so he could produce on the show. And, uh, we were always friends. And so that when he took over price and then Rich Fields left and they needed an announcer, uh, I was one of the six, I think six candidates that uh, he brought in. You know, I hadn't seen him in years. We were always friendly, you know. I mean, one of those people that you, you know and love and, you know, you always, if you bump into each other, it's like long lost brothers. But, you know, we didn't, I, I hadn't seen him in forever. And got the call from my agent that, you know, Mike was willing, you know, he actually, Mike wanted me to come in. And, uh, and he even said, like, when I came in, he said, all right, uh, you know, I want you to knock it out of the park. But just to let you know, we already have our guy. And I was like, Ugh. It's like, you already know who it is? He's like, yeah. I'm like, who is it? He's like, I can't tell you. And I knew it was Jeff Davis. Jeff Davis, who's a, a Who's Line uh, guy and uh, an improv guy and staggeringly genius. I mean, he is just unbelievably talented. And and I watched his his episodes. We each did 20 episodes. So so like kind of a, a mini run, you know, each one got one. And I watched his episodes and he was just crushing it every time. He was just great. He was loose and he was fluid. He had worked with Drew on Who's Line. I mean, you know, he could handle anything. I was like, Ugh, I don't stand a chance. And so I just went and had fun. I just had a great time. I just decided I was going to do it my way and just have a, have a great time. And, you know, no matter what, I would get to do 20 episodes of Price Right. It'd be fun. And I, you know, now here I am. 10 years later, you're still there. Mm -hmm. Is it helpful with the relationship you and Drew have to make it feel fun and kind of like, getting the crowd involved and everything or do you think it would be totally different if you guys did not have that fun relationship on the show pardon me uh i need a beverage let's see uh what are we gonna do here let's see uh you know what i think uh seven up sounds delightful yeah uh oh yeah mm. 
it'll be beer in a few hours, but right now it's a little too early. Um, yeah, I mean, I personally think it's very important to have, you know, that great connection with Drew. And I, it, I think it comes across on camera. It's, it's genuine. You know, Drew is a super genuine uh, host. You, he, he's, he's not being plastic to any of the contestants. He, I mean, he's never said it, but he doesn't see the show as like his, you know, fiefdom. I mean, he, he's super welcoming to all of us on stage. You know, the high and good mornings are genuine. We, we really don't see each other right before the show. So I, I get to work and I'll get ready and then hop up on stage. He'll get in a little bit after I don't see him in the hallways or anything. Occasionally I'll bump into him and just wave. But really, so when we say hi on stage, like, hey, how you doing, buddy? Like, super genuine, super real. We're actually saying hi. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, it feels like a family because it is like a family. So it's it's great. I love it. And I think I think that shows that that genuine connection. Yeah, it really, it, it comes across. You can't be on, can't be on air every day during the daytime where, you know, people tune in like your family and it feel phony and plastic. Yeah. You know, cause there's enough crap out there in the world right now. I think we both know, you know, everybody could use a smile, you know, have a little bit of fun. I think that, like you said, I think the hour that it's on, anyone that's watching it, I mean, people are going to have a smile. They're like getting very invested into the show. I mean, there's been times when I'm watching with my family and we're screaming prices for like some of the games because we're just very, like we're excited. And it's just an hour of our day that we don't have to worry about the things that are going on. Oh yeah, screaming at the TV, it's half the fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I was there actually doing the show. I gotta get out to California now. Yeah, I, I always joke around that when people are in the audience and I'm telling them before the show, hey, if I call you on down, here's what you do. And I always say, you know, it, it's, it looks really easy when you're at home and you're underpants eating Cheerios screaming at the TV. It's super easy. And I guarantee you've been sitting there on your couch watching somebody and you go, idiot, look at that moron. And then you get there and then Drew says, oh, hey, before we start the game, where are you from? And the person goes, hey, baby, 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 baby. No, they don't even know what state they live in. So... You know, yeah, people don't realize that when, once you get there and it's all happening, it goes by really fast. You've had some memorable moments, uh, some that have gone viral where you've fallen off mm -hmm. the treadmill. But to you, what has been your favorite moment in the last 10 years of being on that show? I mean, I think probably... I think my favorite is grenading on the treadmill. I think that's super fun. Yeah. Yeah. I like, because you know, I like being an idiot. It's fun. I mean, I, I, you know, one, when, when I've done sketch comedy, I love slipping on the banana peel. I love it. You know, I've always thought it was super fun. Um, and just physical, dumb comedy, you know, and yeah. And, and, and the best comedy is real. And I was a total jackass. I couldn't, I couldn't reach out for a script and, and 
and run on a treadmill backwards at the same time, apparently. Uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, if you're watching this, just go on Google and type in George Gray treadmill or Price is Right treadmill, idiot treadmill. Any of those will get you to me pretty quickly. Um, but it's really funny. Yeah, it's super funny. Yeah. And they caught it on camera. And when I fell, you know, we went to commercial. And then uh, the executive producer, Mike Richards at the time, came came over and he said, are you okay? I said, I'm fine. I think I just, I think I, I, I think I landed right on my ego. And, uh, and, uh, and I said, please tell me you got that on camera because I was off camera at the time, you know, they were shooting something else, but there's so many cameras on stage. Yeah. There can be a camera pointing towards me, you know? And, uh, I said, please tell me you got that on camera. And he said, Oh, we got it. And I said, please tell me you're going to keep that in the show. And he said, Oh, we're going to keep it in the show. I was like, yeah. So that was, you know, I was excited that it got to stay in the show because it's real. Oh yeah. And it's kind of like a fun moment that, you know, anyone that's watching it is going to have a laugh. Oh, well, Manuela, she, uh, there was a game called five price tags. You can also look it up on Google and see that, that where, there's five price tags and one of them is the amount to a car and you can win up to three picks. And um, a lot of times people only get one pick. You, you have to earn picks for knowing, you know, prices of vegetable soup or whatever. And, uh, and so then once the game is over, if the person doesn't guess the one with the car, then Manuela picks off the other ones to reveal which one says car under it so that you know which one it would have been. And, uh, you know, um, and uh, she just kind of was on autopilot in her brain because I guess she thought that he had no more picks. And so she, you know, know, okay, is it that one? Oh, no, it's not that one. And then she just picked the next one and it was the car to reveal it. And, And then she just realized what she did and was horrified. Drew died laughing. The contestant started laughing and they gave the contestant the car. What an easy win that probably was for that contestant. And, and she was mortified. And so many people were, were you know, writing and texting and, and on you know, tweeting, you know, oh, is she going to be fired? No. No, as a matter of fact, Mike, who was still the EP at the time said, you kidding? She gave her a raise. Do you realize that thing went so viral? Like it went bigger than my treadmill falling. If it happened after the treadmill, and um, I mean the the eyeballs that saw it was huge. I mean, you couldn't. And he even said that cost us a car. That's that's the best publicity you could ever. I couldn't pay for enough commercials for that. So that was that was awesome. Yeah, and it, and it just you know. And it just shows that, you know, we're all human, you know, and, uh, and that it's funny. Yeah. Left it in. And I think it's awesome that the contestant got the car. I think it's great. Because they had, they were they had one more pick left. So if they didn't have any picks left, then they wouldn't have been wrong. But, yeah, they had a pick left. So congratulations. <laughs> Easiest game you've ever played. So talk about during this time, during the pandemic, and how The Price is Right has been able to continue putting out episodes in, in a safe way. 
Well, we just started back, actually. We only started back three weeks, no, not three weeks, a month ago, I guess. Um, so it's all, it's new. Um, and uh, they, they had to figure out how to do it. And I give them huge credit. Now the um, executive producer, her name is uh, Evelyn Warfel, and she was the co-executive with Mike Richards. And then when Mike left, she became the executive producer. So she'd been doing it for years already, you know? And so her baby familiar with the show. And then a guy named Adam Sandler, different guy. Uh, <laughs> he's our, he's man. That guy's worn so many hats. He's been on the show forever. He was, he was stage manager. Um, he's uh, he does like, you know, meat and potatoes production stuff. And, and then he was producer. He's now the director of the show as well and is the co-executive producer. And I mean, it, it, he like has nine hats, you know, he just does everything. Uh, yeah, if I got a question about anything, I just ask Adam and he knows, he knows it. Um, and so, so Adam and Evelyn oversee the show now. And I mean, they just, between those two, they, they know it, uh, they know it so well, you know? And, um, uh, they had to figure out it was super tough. Like, what do you do? How do you, because if you think about it, a show like Jeopardy, what do you do? Well, Alex would always stand very far away from the contestants. That's easy. And the contestants, all right, move the podiums a little farther apart. Ta-da! And the studio audience, well, don't have one. You never see them anyway. Yeah. And, and so all, they, all you do is kind of hear applause well add it in that's easy you know i mean so uh, for a while anyway until they can have an audience again so that that one takes about four seconds to figure out how to do you know same with wheel of fortune same thing you don't really need to hear that when, when somebody spins the wheel and you hear the clapping just add it in it's fine we can't have an audience right now you know move everybody a little farther apart how do you have the prices right how do you have somebody come on down in an empty room yeah, that's tough. And you know what? I give them massive credit. They worked they worked their tails off forever trying to figure out how do we make this show work? And I think they came up with 97 plans. You know, they were trying to think of everything. They, they were trying to think of small groups in the audience, people that knew each other, people that had been tested together. They called the pods, moving apart. And they finally settled on no audience. The four contestants. So they just... It, it, where the where the audience is on price, uh, it's just a floor now. It just covers the entire audience, uh, and the two the two uh, doorways, the two curtains where audience members would come in to sit in their seats. Now we have the contestants run out from from behind there, and there's 15 people. Only nine get picked, so you don't know if you're going to get picked. It's a genuine surprise. They stand there behind the curtain, socially distanced. They have a mask on, six feet away from each other. And then when I'm about ready to call a name, they unhook their mask, they hold it over their mouth like this. And if they hear their name, they drop their mask and they run out. And then everybody else rehooks theirs. If you don't hear your name, you just hook it back on and then you hope you get picked. And everybody helps each other to win. They all cheer for one another. I always say, we usually have 350 people and it's 15. So now you need to sound like 350 people. And they do. 
They all cheer for each other wildly. They all help each other to win. And you got 14 other people like rooting for you. And so it's almost, I think, in a way easier because instead of 350 different answers, you got 14 people kind of more often than not shouting the same thing at you. Yeah. So you don't have to take your advice, but you know, when, when you're kind of panicked, it, it helps. Um, so it works. And then when somebody comes up to play a game with Drew, they stand six feet apart. You know, Drew will, they'll start coming towards him. And he, he sticks out his hands. And he goes, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. You know, so they, they'll hold out their hand. And when they can almost fist bump, he's like, okay, that's good. <laughs> so, you know, that's three feet, three feet, maybe another foot in between it. Okay. And uh, it works. It really does. So, you know, it's one of those things. Uh-oh, the banana phone. Oh, you know what that was? That was a spam call. Like, Do you get spam calls? Oh, yeah. Every day. So many, I get so many spam calls. Uh, what's nice though is uh, if you're ever super bored, just answer the phone and speak gibberish, um, <laughs> or I'll uh, I'll speak. Uh, I don't really speak Spanish, but I know enough to just confuse somebody, and uh, it's great. You can mess around with them a little bit. Usually, I get someone that's calling me and they're looking for another person, and it's this person has kept using my number like for so many years and I just kind of listen to hear the person's voice and I'm like, Oh yeah, that's me. And then I hang up just to joke around with them. But it's nice. I get so many and it's just like, can you just stop calling me please? Yeah. It's kind of bad. It's nutty. So talk about in April of 2020, you mentioned earlier that you suffered a heart attack. Talk about that day. And as we know today, you definitely have rise to the challenge in the recovery stages. Ah, I see how you tied it all in at the end here, huh? Yep. Nice. It's like when you're watching the action movie and they actually say, you know, I guess it's my day to die hard. And you're like, ah, I said the thing, that's the name. Got to plug it in there somewhere. Exactly. Um, yeah, April, I, you know, super healthy, always low cholesterol, always in great shape. Uh, you know, run every day. I was actually in what, probably I would say the best shape of my life. And uh, typically run a, a mile a day. Um, I don't eat a lot of fatty foods, not because I don't love them. It's because I, if I, if I look at a piece of bacon, I gain weight and you know, <laughs> I mean, I got to fit my ass behind a podium. So, you know, and plus I like beer and I'm not giving that up. So, you know, I give up some things. So I'm mean, going to, I take care of myself never had any history in my family, nothing. And I woke up to a massive heart attack, massive, massive, almost died. Uh, you know, a couple quick stent surgeries and then open heart surgery three days later, where I again had a heart attack on the table. Uh, super charming. And, uh, out of nowhere, like the doctors, I had one doctor look at me, says, Mr. Gray, your case is so fascinating. You, you don't belong here. I'm like, yeah, I know. Thanks, man. <laughs> so it's just a genetic, a genetic fluke, you know. Now, if I would have actually been tested, if I would have been tested 10 years earlier, I would have shown to have very serious heart disease. Um, I, the doctors, I said, how long would this have taken to build up in my system like this? And they said, 15, 20 years. So I was in my, I was in my 20s, you know, when I was having heart issues and didn't know it, never knew it, super healthy. And 
you know, at 50, 53, 53? I always forget my age. Um, at 53, why would I think there's anything wrong with me? You know, super healthy, run stairs like a champ, always feel great, tons of energy. And uh, I never went to, I never bothered to go get checked. And so I'm actually, I think it's within this week, I'm, I'm going to do, um, do a PSA for the American Heart Association about, uh, I think I'm a great poster child for um, this can happen to you, you know? Don't believe it can't happen to you because look at me, I didn't think it would happen to me, you know? Why would it? So, you know what? Take four minutes, go get tested. Just find out your ticker's okay, and then forget about it until you're 75, you know? But it, it could really save your life, okay. it really could. And I just got plain lucky got blessed, got lucky, all those things. Because if I wasn't exactly where I was and they didn't exactly get there fast and start operating on me right away, um, I would have made it. I wouldn't have made it at all. I was supposed to be in Thailand, but because of COVID, I wasn't in Thailand. If I was in Thailand, not because Thailand is a backwater, it was, I would have been out in the middle of nowhere. And by the time I got, you know, on a mini bike to a to a taxi to a helicopter to a major city to a hospital dead like i, I was a hundred percent blocked on to one side of my heart so but i have no damage now because they operated so quickly i was i was i think it was like four or five minutes from the moment that i woke up and i said something's really wrong my um, wife Brittany called 911 they were there in like three or four minutes and the hospital was like, I think they said it was like 14 minutes away, but we're going to do it faster. And they did it in under seven. And then I was in pre-op for three or four minutes and then they were operating. So from the time you know, my life turned upside down within like 35, 40 minutes, but that's what saved my life is that fast. So, um, so I think in a way I have truly risen to the challenge and see, <laughs> that, see there you, go. you got the name in, you got everything. Well, there was an article that I think Brittany said a quote and she said, COVID kind of saved your life because you were in town and not, and like you mentioned, you would have been in Thailand. So. Oh, did, did Brittany say that? I or did I say? Someone, one of you two say it. it was in an article. Cause I think. I'm not saying I didn't say it. There was a, there was a lot going on. I mean, you know, a lot of oxygen wasn't getting in my brain at some point. So, um, but yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a very fair statement that, uh, I mean, I was down, I have a, I have a house in Bisbee, Arizona, which is this really amazing little mining town on the Mexican border, about an hour and 45 minutes south of Tucson. And, uh, Brittany and I hopped on a motorcycle and rode down there. And, uh, I mean, I was riding back, you know, what, 12 hours earlier? If I was on the bike when that hit, oh, I would have killed us both, you know? So, or if I was in Bisbee, they would have had to medevac me up to Tucson. And even that, I think it's, it's at least a 25-minute helicopter ride, which means they'd have to get it there first, dead. I wouldn't make it. You know, I had to be exactly where I was exactly where I was. That's the only reason I survived. So I obviously have some work to do. My path is not finished. I 
I got more, I got more come on downs to get. <laughs> well, we're so happy that you're healthy and you're doing good and you're still doing the things that you love. Talk about what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish professionally and personally in the next few years? You know, I think that, I think that there would be, uh, I think it would be great if I, uh, you know, if, if my name became uh, famous is the wrong word, but more associated with the announcer of The Price is Right than Rod Roddy. Rod Roddy, even people who don't really know Price is Right, like, you know, if you say Rod Roddy, they go, that was the guy who wore all the sequin jackets, right? You know, I mean, he was, he's kind of just in the fabric of America. And I would consider that an honor. So I don't think there's, I, I find no harm or shame in being pigeonholed as, you know, if I could do it for the next, I mean, there's no reason I couldn't do it for another 20 years. I, I could be 30 total. And uh, yeah, I mean, Drew and I have joked around that, you know, we, we could do this until we're super old. You know, I think at first he wasn't sure how long he wanted to do the show. And I think he's, I think he's in it to win it now. He's, he said, no, I love the show. I want to, I want to do it. And uh, I've joked around that on my tombstone, uh, I really think I am going to do it. It was a joke at first, but I really think I'm going to do it. That it, I wanted to say in huge letters, come on down. <laughs> I mean, it is an iconic line that you're saying. That. And then Drew said he'd be buried next to me and his will say, we'll be right back after this. <laughs> so I think it's perfect. Uh, but yes, I think in the future, I mean, I, I, um, I love... I love working. It's super fun. I, I'm really into, you know, cars and bikes and building. So Junkyard Wars was near and dear to me. I would love to do another build-off show. Um, anything with, you know, I love plastic stuff, you know, all the old stuff. So anything like that, I would love to do. Uh, before James Corden took over the Late Late Show, uh, Drew guested for it for a couple weeks, and I got to be his sidekick. Loved that because you get to do monologues, you get to do sketch, you get to do interviews. Um, that kind of stuff is amazing. And then again, if I get to do Prices Right until the day I die, it'll be a blessing. Well, you talked about being known for being the announcer. I know the guy that you mentioned, I don't even know who that was. I think the farthest I can go is Rich Fields, but I think for me and my generation, we kind of we know you as the announcer. So we're excited that what the future looks like for you. Final question I'll ask you, based on okay. your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give a listener to overcome their obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to their challenge? Ooh, I see how you did that. <laughs> um, what to do to rise to the challenge? You know, I think without, I don't think it's cornball. I think it's, and it's way easier said than done, but uh having a positive attitude and believing in yourself. You know, if you say you can do it, then you probably can. Uh, and if you are convinced that you can't do it, then you probably can't. And life is full of people telling you that you can't do it. You know, that, I mean, when I got to town here, I thought I was just going to breeze through it. Oh, I've already got a resume. This is going to be easy. For years, everybody told me, you know, go home, kid. You're a bum. And uh, luckily, I didn't listen. I always say I was too stupid to listen, too stubborn to give up. Whatever, 
you know, but uh, you just keep, if you keep plugging away at something, if you really believe in it, you know, it will happen. If you look at all the people who, you know, are the biggest and most powerful, not, not a lot of them were born into money, you know, or born into power. A lot of them are just stories of somebody who just said, I really believe in this thing and I, and this is what I want to do. And it, and it's whether you're a postman or a preacher, it's just whatever, if you, if you believe in it, if you say I can do it. So I think that's what I would do is, and again, it's really difficult because you, you wake up in the morning and you just look in the mirror, ah, me, you, we all do look in the mirror and go, who am I kidding? You know, this isn't working. Just take your licks and move on and then throw it on top. Maybe you got a mom or a dad or a wife or a husband or a brother or a sister or a friend or an enemy that says, eh, you really shouldn't do that. Or, you know, I don't think you're cut out for that. Or you're wasting your time. That's a stupid idea. And then you have to block them out. <laughs> you have to still love them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to go, eh. You know, that's the thing. My parents never told me. My dad, I had long hair. I gave up, you know, law school to come out here. And he never said, you're making a massive mistake. You know, you're throwing your life away. You're a jerk. I can't believe you're doing this. What he said was, is, you know, um, go out and give it a shot. I believe in you. And the door's always open. You know, home is always here. If it, does, if it works out, awesome. And if it doesn't, you've always got, we are always here for you. And that, yeah, I don't think you can ask for anything better. Not everybody gets that. I got lucky, you know. A lot of people get, you're a bum, Joey. You'll always be a bum. You know, so you have to tune that out. So that's how you rise to the challenge. Well, George, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your journey and how you rise to the challenge. We're so excited to see what the future looks like for you. And we can't wait to see more come on down iconic lines in your future. Thank you, my brother. And I expect you to rise to the challenge. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to that to see the full-length episodes in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.